This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Your ears have found their way to the 276th episode of the podcast, which also happens to be the sixth episode in the inaugural stretch of the Cast One series. For those of you who do not know already, the Cast One series is aimed a little bit more towards the curious person who has some interest in fly fishing, or the new fly fisher, or if you've been fly fishing for a long time, it attempts to go through those basics, those fundamentals again, uh, because it's always good to revisit that, and it gives you some ammunition as you are talking to people and trying to be helpful in explaining what fly fishing is and how fly fishing works. In today's podcast, we're talking about the seasons of fly fishing, but we're talking about the seasons of fly fishing really specifically for trout. This does not mean that what we talk about today has no applicability to warm water fish or to the salt, uh, but it really is more focused on trout. We will be talking about warm water fly fishing in the next few weeks on the podcast, and uh, a saltwater podcast in the salt in the Cast One series is on the docket, but not for the immediate future. But what what I am seeing as I talk through these issues, as I plan to talk through these issues. And hopefully you're getting as you're listening, especially if you're a new angler, is that there is so much more out there. Um, every one of these topics has the ability to be communicated at a very high level in 25 minutes, I think. But it could also be an entire uh, you know, one-on-one level course. It could be an entire graduate level course. And what we're talking about today reveals that in, in a very full, full measure. Because in talking about the seasons of fly fishing, you could have an entire entire podcast series on fly fishing in the winter for trout, certainly springtime and fall and summer as well. Um, And then some of the different environs that I'm going to be talking about all warrant information on their own. And they probably have been treated as such in the back catalog of not only the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast, but also Casting Across itself. But without further ado, let's dive into it. 
Now, remember something that I've said, and much wiser men and women have said it before me, but trout are only looking for a few things in their life. They're not looking for meaning. They're not looking for fulfillment. They're looking for food, safety, and a couple times a year, making trout babies. And that's all they are thinking about. And if you consider that two of these are primarily dictated by the calendar. Now, not necessarily the calendar in the sense of, you know, January, February, March, but in the seasonal changes that happen as the calendar rolls on. The spawn is dictated by the life cycle of the fish. And for most trout species, that's going to be either in the springtime or in the fall. Uh, we're not going to go too too deep into that. Your local population might have different spawning uh, habits than, than mine. Uh, you do find some variation. I'm also not going to tie these things to a month. Um, there was, for example, a, a um, brown trout population close to where I used to live in Pennsylvania that would spawn about a month earlier than all the other fish. And so to say, oh, it ha definitely happens in October, November, you know, that's a, a, a bit of a stretch. Or uh, up here, there's some brook trout populations that we've identified in New England that spawn very early. I mean, early September. And so we close those waters down to protect those populations. But you're going to have some variations between, not, not just between browns, rainbows, brookies, and cutthroats, but even uh, among various strains and populations of those fish. But that is going to be dictated by the calendar. So we'll talk about the spawn a little bit uh, in a moment. But the other aspect of it, so that's the, that's the making baby part, right? Um, when it comes to staying safe, there may be seasonal variations regarding predation. Uh, so as things begin to wake up, fish behavior might be changed by the fact that in a particular place, whether it be other fish that are pecivorous that are going after those fish, so you might have um, everything from eels or salmon or, um, you know, uh, whatever coming into the water, um, or, you know, striped bass might be entering the river and the rainbow trout are, are then uh, become a food source. And so they really shut down and become very finicky when it comes to eating. Um, but more often than not, predation is not the greatest factor, seasonally speaking, for why fishing changes. But when it comes to eating food, that is the primary dictator of fish behavior, particularly when it comes to angling. And the reason for that is, as that calendar changes, it is indicative of temperature changing. And as that temperature changes, that is what is going to get that very bottom of the food chain that not even the, the, micro, the macroinvertebrates, but the things that the macroinvertebrates eat, plant matter, for example, is going to be coming alive and going to be growing as photosynthesis uh, begins to occur and the seasonal cycles begin to change. The insects respond in turn. The small um, invertebrates, whether they be fish or amphibians, uh, begin to uh, respond in turn to that, and so on and so forth, up the food chain till you get to fish. And you might even say that we're part of that also, because we are much more apt to act to go out and fish as the weather gets warmer. But particularly speaking of fish, of trout, they are going to be more active as the stuff in the water becomes more active, because they are concerned about food. So let's just take it to the winter. So this is being recorded in February. And here in New England, the fishing is relatively slow. And the reason for that is that fish are, with, with eating being one of their primary things that they're concerned about, they can do the complex equation of how many calories am I going to expend to chase that food down or go hunting for food versus the amount of calories I'm going to take in. Is it worthwhile? The metabolism slows down in the wintertime um, and they, they don't move as much, so they're less likely to chase 
foodstuffs around. Does that mean that you will never have a fish to have a violent strike in the wintertime? No, it just means that it is shooting its shot. It's 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 really going after something because it thinks it's worthwhile and it's doing that little simple equation and its simple fish brain of how many calories I'm going to take. But by and large, fishing in the wintertime is not going to be a high yield, fast action kind of fishing. There are still fish in the rivers and they still have to eat. And that means they will still take your artificial flies, but you're going to more likely than not have to put them right in front of their face. It could be a tiny fly. If they don't have to move, they don't mind opening their mouth and chewing. And it could be a big fly and all the better for them. But there are still plenty of opportunities to fish for trout in the wintertime, assuming A, it's legal where you live. Some uh, places shut down their fisheries uh, in the wintertime and B, that it is ethical. Now, you're going to run into a lot of the same situations, assuming that you live in kind of a moderate climate in the wintertime as you do in the summertime. If it gets too cold, you have to be very considerate of how you handle the fish. That fish that is in the water has some thermal refuge by being surrounded by water, being a cold-blooded animal, compared to what it is like when it gets brought up out of the water. Even having that fish in your net, in your hand, out of the water for a handful of seconds can be detrimental to that fish. And so that's why I'm saying you not only have to pay attention to the local legality of fishing, but the ethical considerations that go into keeping that fish out of the water. Of course, days when it's in the 40s and 50s, that's not a big deal. But you can certainly fish below freezing. Um, you can fish below zero if you're a little bit of a masochist. But at that point, you need to be not only concerned of your own safety, but of the fish's safety. Would you want to be in that situation? Of course, if you're catching fish to eat, which fly fishers do, and there's it's not wrong to do that. If you can uh, do that where, where you're fishing and it's it's an ethical idea, then by all means, keep that thing out of the, out of the water as long as you want. In fact, it'll freeze up nice and uh, stay nice and fresh for you. But just think about how few things are moving around on your river that you drive over every day or that you, you dream about fishing on in the middle of February. There's not a whole lot of birds. You're not seeing anything swimming around. You're not seeing a lot of bugs flittering about. Of course, there are insects that are active in the wintertime, and this is the kind of thing that you'd want to key in on when you are fishing for trout. Trout will rise to dry flies. In fact, uh, some of my favorite fly fishing in the wintertime is finding fish that are rising to midges, these teeny tiny little macroinvertebrates that are hatching, that are flitting around on the surface of the water, that from time to time, especially in a nice sunny spot, you'll find fish that get in the mood to chase after them. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to have dry fly fishing in the middle of January and the middle of February. Of course, uh, that is going to be an exception and not a rule, depending on where you fish. But the fly fishing will slow down because the fish slow down themselves. Their metabolism, their feeding, the feeding opportunities they have start to reduce. And so as a just the way that they're created, they're going to really dial back their activity in the wintertime. But of course, spring is right around the corner. Now, when does spring hit? Now, of course, there's a calendar day for spring. But if you've ever planted vegetables or, or fruit or you've transplanted um, plants from a greenhouse into your, your garden uh, or your yard, you know that there's growing seasons, times when it is most ideal to plant, is most ideal to transplant for those plants. And that is, you know, there's these wavy lines that go from the south of the United States all the way up to the north. And springtime, quote unquote, is later as you move further north. 
The same thing is true of, of uh, the seasonality of trout fishing. Um, for trout anglers, this isn't something that is talked about as frequently as with bass anglers. In fact, there's well-documented kind of bass spawning season because they spawn in the springtime. Um, and one of the times that folks like to pattern them is the pre-spawn. Um, and so they will actually have these maps of when the spawn is going to be for the bass as you go from Florida up to Maine and then, of course, west. Um, but a similar phenomenon happens with with trout in the springtime, and it has to do, yes, with the seasonality of the life cycle of the fish, but it's also very much largely dependent upon the climate you live at, the the um, the, the latitude that where where you are and where you're fishing. But even that, there's more variables. So out here in the east, we are primarily influenced by the temperature. But when you get out west in some of these famous rivers out west, when you think about Montana and Colorado and Wyoming, they are not only influenced by the temperature that the air is and how much that influences the water temperature, but they're influenced on how much snow they got and how much melting that snow is doing. So a really, really warm stretch might be nice, but it also might mean that that water is blown out and looks like chocolate milk. And so although it's incredibly warm out, it would have been nicer for more temperate cooler weather for a long stretch of weeks so that you have uh, that water slowly melting and warming up uh, more slowly as opposed to a deluge of, of uh, glacial runoff or, or snow melt. So there's, there's a lot of variables, but eventually what will happen, uh, you know, assuming that things aren't crazy, uh, both environmentally and otherwise, is that you will have a burgeoning insect activity. Not just insects, but of course, the other things that eat insects. The bait fish become more active. All the other little critters that become more active, whether it be crayfish, whether it be frogs, you know, the entire food uh, chain begins to wake up in the springtime as the weather warms in response, not just to the weather, but but, but the, how the weather is a trigger to their natural life cycles. Everything starts looking for love uh, as well at some point in time in the spring. And so they start to make dumb choices like people. But that means that the trout will respond in kind. So that is why uh, springtime for many folks is kind of the apex of trout fishing. So generally speaking, here in New England, you have March, April, May, and then into June is the pinnacle of the hatches. You look at the hatch charts and the majority of those insects, those mayflies, those caddisflies, and those even those stoneflies begin to come out in fullness in the springtime. This is where you think about these hatches that look like snowstorms where there's so many bugs on the water and because they're available and they're active and the water's beginning to warm up and the fish metabolism is beginning to wake up, they are willing to chase smaller foodstuffs over a greater distance of of water as well as be keyed into those insects as they rise and as the the they begin to take off and uh, that's when you have these spectacular opportunities to fish these historic hatches not just in the northeast but across the country is there more detail to fishing in the springtime? Absolutely. But uh, this is this kind of the, the, the focal points that we're hitting, the high notes, as it will, of the winter, uh, the spring. And then as you move into summer, things begin to change. This is where if you live in certain parts of the country, the parts of the country that maybe fishing really was slow in the winter, it might also be really slow in the summer. 
um, the the water might incredibly heat up to the point where it is not safe to fish for trout because of the stress that fish go under um, when they are exerted and the water is already warm. If you're interested, and this is again, this is better to read than it is for me to talk about. At the active range and the and the dangerous range for for the different trout species, you can go check it out because it varies from species to species. It also varies to a certain degree from population to population, but by and large, species to species has a comfortable range for them to uh, kind of thrive in and for to fish for them in. And then you hit a certain heat point where it becomes very very dangerous. Their their um, response to stress can actually be fatal to them. And summertime in places that the water gets really warm, this is the case. Now, that being said, fish will find places to go. They will find spring seeps. They will move up into the headwaters. They will find shady thermal refuge. They'll find all of those things. But uh, there are a lot of places where you just cannot fish for trout in summer because they're not there anymore. And if you do, it's not good for the fish. But in places where you can fish for trout in the summer, and the water is nice and cool, and it has that good dissolved oxygen level, um, which, again, your, your regulation book should give you this information, and the fly shops will give you this. They want to be good stewards of the populations of trout that, that they have in their in their area. Um, this is where uh, streamer fishing really kicks in. The fish may become have this carn carnivorous streak about them. Um, not to say that you can't use those in the summer, and, or excuse me, the spring and the winter, uh, but it's also a time when terrestrials become a very, very important food source. So all of those bugs that you're swatting off of you while you're fishing are also falling into the water. And most of them, whether they be beetles or ants or grasshoppers or crickets, these are the things that trout are absolutely going to love. Because although a mayfly and a caddisfly, when it gets to the surface, um, it uh, has a short window where it is trying to get its wings uh, uh, dry enough to fly, um, it can then fly away. Most of the bugs I just mentioned aren't going anywhere. I've never seen a beetle fly out of the water. I've never seen an ant fly out of the water. Certainly grasshoppers and crickets can't do this either. So they are kicking around, they are splashing, and they are big, protein-rich, calorie-full food sources for trout. So this is a great thing to fish in the summertime. There will still be lingering uh, macroinvertebrate hatches of, of, of mayflies and caddisflies and stoneflies. But the summertime, when I think summer, I think uh, terrestrials. Um, and this is a lot of fun because you can splat these flies down on the water. You think about what is a, what is a uh, cricket sound like when you drop it in the water. It's not going to be super delicate. Um, bigger flies, bigger rods, bigger fish. A lot of fun in the summertime. And then, of course, you move to fall. And fall really rivals springtime as for as far as how much people in, enjoy it. Um, when you are fishing pre-spawn, and again, this is talking about the populations of fish, brook trout and brown trout, not so much rainbow trout, uh, at least the populations around here, that are spawning in the fall, they have a pre-spawn behavior. So one quick word on the spawn. Uh, it is generally considered not to be ethical to fish for fish while they are spawning. Um, that is an integral period of time when the actual, the, 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 the spawning is occurring where the female is laying eggs. The male is depositing its, um, its milt over top of those eggs. Um, it, and they are being fertilized. And then the fish are providing some sort of uh, quote unquote parenting of those, uh, of those eggs that are on the nest, those fertilized eggs that are on the nest. 
um, taking the fish away during any one of these parts of this process uh, can be detrimental to those uh, juvenile or those those eggs uh, that, that are going to be the next year's crop of fish. There's already a high rate of mortality just because of the nature of, of that version of spawning. Um, th th they are outside of the fish. They don't have that natural protection of being on the inside of their, their mother. And so there's a high level of, of mortality. So to then take away the main source of protection um, when the, the, the eggs have already been fertilized by that fish that is guarding that nest, that red, R-E-D-D, -D, as it were, is, is detrimental. Um, and then to harass those fish while they are spawning, you might actually impede that spawning. The, the female may drop eggs and then the males may not uh, fertilize them um, or, or vice versa. The males may be uh, fertilizing eggs that have been fertilized a whole bunch already and uh, because they, they are being harassed off of um, the, the, the female that has not had a male fertilize her eggs. But all that to say, um, fishing at those points during the spawn is is generally frowned upon. But fishing pre-spawn is not. I mean, when these fish are looking for a, a place to 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 um, spawn, they are getting uh, filled. They are filling up uh, and getting that uh, ready to go and spawn. And this happens across the animal kingdom, where you see creatures that they become more aggressive. Uh, they begin to eat more because they are going to have a period of time where, in their small microscopic brains, they are going to microscopic is hyperbole, but you know what I mean. Uh, they 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 are only going to focus on spawning. And so they have a period of time where they ramp up their consumption of food, they become more aggressive. And at that time, it's it's generally considered okay to fish. Now, you may have a very strong ethical opinion on this. But uh, usually, in the fall, you're going to have fish that are more aggressive, and you're going to have fish that are looking to get a meal. And you're still going to have uh, terrestrials. It's going to be uh, times of the year where the water is warmer and the air is warmer, but your day kind of shrinks down. But you're also going to have more insects that are hatching. Um, this is also a nice last hurrah, not just for those fish before their spawn, but for the anglers before the long cold winter. And so there's lots of opportunities to get into fish in the fall. Um, and especially if it's pre-spawn, that's when fish begin to really, really be beautiful. And uh, you, you see them uh, on the move looking for opportunities to fill up before their spawn and then what they you know, know, quote unquote, know as the long coming winter. Uh, the same is true post-spawn after they are off their reds. But a lot of places will close down fishing, especially places that have imperiled populations. Uh, a lot of the historically um, uh, popular fisheries they will close down the fishing post-spawn to protect the reds from being weighted on. So um, you don't want to uh, wade on the row, as it were, the, those juvenile fish, uh, and they're being protected in those, those rocks. So is that an incredibly cursory, broad, uh, surface-level uh, look at those four seasons? Yes. But it kind of gives you an idea of what to expect as you move from the winter to the spring to the summer to the fall. Two caveats, and this warrants an entire podcast on its own, but it's worth mentioning. If you can fish a tailwater, so that is to say a river that comes out from a dam, and that tailwater is bottom release, so it's not it doesn't look like a waterfall uh, coming over a dam, but it comes out of turbines uh, or out of some sort of uh, tubing that is at the bottom of the dam, and that flow is regulated such that there is a consistent flow throughout the year within a certain range, then there's a very good chance that seasonality is not going to be as big of a deal for fish behavior. The reason for that is the water coming out of the bottom of that dam is going to be a consistent temperature year 
round with a few degrees of variation because that water that's at the bottom of that lake above the impoundment has all that thermal refuge of, of the water that's above it. So even though it may ice over on top, it's not icing 75 or 50 feet down. And so that water is coming out nice and cool and it'll be nice and cool, but warmer than a similar river that has no dam on it. Um, that time of year. And in the, in the summertime, it'll be cooler than a river that is flowing unimpeded, um, throughout the summer, throughout the summer. Now, of course, as you get the further and further you get away from that cold water source, the greater it is going to cool off in the wintertime and they warm up in the summertime. So there is some seasonal changes. Then, of course, you have the life cycles of the insects and of the other creatures and, of course, the trout. So there are going to be changes in behavior, but they're not going to be as extreme as you're going to find on a river that is uh, a free-flowing, freestone river. Now, the other thing is a spring creek. Um, so instead of uh, with a tailwater, that water coming out of the bottom of the dam, here you have water rising up from the earth, and that water is a more consistent temperature because it is instantaneously appearing, or you know, more often than not, a number of springs kind of come together to form a creek or a river. And uh, that is going to be within a few degrees, depending on if it's January or July. Now, the further you get downstream, that that uh, all the influences of the... Uh, air around it and the temperature of even the ground and even the, the the stream bottom is going to change that but just generally speaking and this is there's not uh, hard and fast rules but uh, a, a river that might be fishable uh, for a mile in the winter time and in the summertime might be fishable a mile and a half in the spring and in the fall because of that the the, the temperatures being a little bit more mild but you still have that mile of fishable water more often than that it's a lot more than that, 15 20 miles on some big rivers but um, those are the other the, just the two kind of caveats I wanted to throw out there when it comes to seasonal fishing, that you're going to have a bigger buffer of opportunities to fish if you have a spring creek nearby or if you have a tailwater nearby. And a tailwater doesn't have to be this giant dam like you think of when you think of the, the popular fisheries in um, Arkansas or Tennessee or, or places like that. Sometimes uh, this can be a relatively small dam, but uh, the water it's being it's pulling from uh, in that impoundment is cold enough in the summertime and uh, protected enough in the wintertime to provide uh, good consistent flows such that there is quality uh, you know food chains year round uh, for that that uh, the fishery all right so much more could be said and any uh, fly fishing book uh, like how to book worth it, worth it salt will provide you a lot of the same information I provided and go into greater detail and illustrating some of these concepts that I talked about with good charts about insect hatches, uh, how those go through the seasons, as well as um, how fish respond to the temperature and the calendar as regards to the spawn. But lots of information there. If you have any particular questions, check out the website castingacross.com or drop me an email, matthew at castingacross.com. This week on the website, two articles. The first one uh, was a real privilege and a joy to write, and it's called Healing Waters, an Important Fly Fishing Book. So I mentioned this last week as my recommendation. I'd finished it between uh, um, Friday when the podcast came out and uh, Monday when I wrote this article. And Bo Beasley's uh, interviews with uh, folks that are either volunteers of or more importantly, members of Project Healing Waters participants is just a real important book. And that's why I called it what I called it. Um, it goes to show the power of fly fishing and the potential of the fly fishing community to really have an impact on people's lives in a way that goes beyond recreation and entertainment and uh, keeping us busy. So 
all I have to say is, is get this book and read it. If you have a veteran in your life, this would be a, a great gift, a great encouragement to them. Um, and a portion of the proceeds of each copy of this book go towards Project Healing Waters. Wednesday's article, not nearly as important, River Apollo 7, the seventh installment of a kind of a slow burning story that I have been working on over the last few months. So it's been a few months since I've popped a uh, installment in, but Wednesday's uh, is uh, about a growing tension uh, within a Trout Unlimited chapter. So that's where you find yourself if you pick up in River Apollo 7. But it would make the most sense to go back to the beginning, wouldn't it? Yes, I, I agree very much. This week's recommendation is a product I've been using for, I think, about three years now, and it's the Corker's Dark Horse Waiting Boot. The Corker's Dark Horse Waiting Boot. And it's a phenomenally built boot, incredibly supportive. It has the Corker's feature of interchangeable soles. Um, I personally use the, um, the the plain rubber soles the most, but um, this time of year when there's ice in random places, I throw on... Um, the, the the soles that are kind of like the hex shape studs that uh, really do a good job of gripping. But the reason why I'm recommending the Dark Horse, and you can find this feature in other boots, but I like how the whole package comes together with the particular boot from Corkers, the Dark Horse, is because it uses the BOA closure system, the BOA closure system. So you may be familiar with that if you ski or um, you, there's even hiking boots that, that feature this. But this is kind of the 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 steel, the coated steel cable that winds through the eyelets of the shoelaces and then goes into a little mechanism that um, that, that, that you can then tighten very easily. Um, I like it when it is cold out uh, because um, it's, you know, tie your shoelaces. And secondly, um, I like it because it is infinitely adjustable based upon what is what you're wearing underneath your waiter. So you're not going to have a huge variation bet between waiting sock to waiting sock. Um, but uh, this time of year, when I'm really got a very full waiting booty because I've got a couple of layers of socks on, it's nice to not have to completely unlace my boot and then uh, make it tight. The boa kind of accommodates that, and you can kind of uh, just dial it up to the point where you need to. So it's super easy to get on and off, and the uh, durability of Corkers is uh, second to none. So uh, I, I will put a link to the Corkers Dark Horse. They, they are a more expensive boot, but if you need um, ease of access, you need stability, and you need comfort, uh, you could do a lot worse than spending a little bit more money um, on your waiting boots with all of those categories. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm -hmm.